we keep really detailed quarterly market research here at our office that we perform all the time. And that really is the difference. You've got to know what the transition streets are in each area, which side you want to be on, which block is good, which block is not. And, and there's no substitute for that. And there's no just simple website you can grab that stuff from because a lot of the data that's out there is at a really large aggregate level for whole metro areas and stuff like that. So being here in the local market for many years, gathering the data ourselves, doing the primary research and, and tracking that and keeping it has been the difference for me. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, guys, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, the number one podcast geared towards helping international investors break into the U.S. market and start buying cash-flowing deals. From Los Angeles, I'm Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, as you know, this show is all about educating our loyal listeners about the benefits of investing in U.S. cash-flowing real estate. Now, if you want to join the community of cracking entrepreneurs who tune in every week to listen to me talk about how to buy U.S. commercial real estate and start cash-flowing to create long-term wealth and to escape the rat race, then jump on iTunes, jump on Stitcher, jump on SoundCloud. I'm across all the platforms and subscribe to my show. If you do like this show, I have a free gift for you. And the way you get your hands on that free gift is pretty simple. All you need to do is jump on iTunes, leave the show a review, send me a screenshot of the review at info at rsnpropertygroup.com. And in return, I will send you my new ebook, which is The Art and Science of Raising Capital Like a Pro, The 4P Rule. Now, this is a pretty simple little ebook that outlines the tools that you need to start really raising capital, become a syndicator, to start closing on more deals. I talk about professionalism. I talk about your pitch. I talk about practice, practice in pitching to investors. And the biggest thing is patience. So if you do want that book, jump on iTunes, leave the show a five-star review, and then shoot me a screenshot and I will send you the book. All right, guys, some bit of housekeeping. As I've been talking a little bit about on this show over the last couple of weeks, I have started a mentorship program to help people buy multifamily US apartments you know, here in the United States, obviously US. <laughs> but what it is, is that I've had a few people reach out to me and say, you know, Reed, I want to start learning from you because, you know, you've got, you've done all this awesome stuff and I want to start buying large apartments with you or learn how you do it. So I've put together this program and it's, uh, it's the A to Z of how to start buying apartments. I start off with just, you know, the basics. How do you un- analyze a deal? How do you underwrite a deal? What are the investing lingo that you need to learn. And I walk you all the way through to finding a deal, how to find great deals, how to find off-market deals, how to put put offers in, submit um, LOIs, letters of intent, how to close on a property, how to complete the due diligence. Uh, and the biggest thing to end it all off, I, I teach you how to create a brand, which is really, really important about when you start raising capital to become a syndicator. So if you are interested in joining my, it's, uh, my exclusive group, because I'm only going to be able to take on about 15 students, then hit me up at info at rsnpropertygroup.com. 
Uh, you'll have unlimited amount of my time each month. You will be a part of a closed Facebook group uh, with, with the other 15 um, mentees. And we will all jump on a once a month call or a once a week call, depending on how we set it up as a group to uh, trade ideas, to mastermind, and you guys will be able to raise capital from within that group. So if you are interested, hit me up at info at rsnpropertygroup.com and I'll teach you the ropes and behind the scenes of what I do. All right, guys, enough out of me. Let's get cracking into today's show. Today's show is all about how to find cash flowing multifamily deals in tier one markets. But first, you know the drill. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Anthony Walker. Anthony is the managing broker with Buckingham Investments based here in Southern California, overseeing the operations of their Torrance office. Anthony is passionate about advising his clients with achieving financial independence and retirement security through investing in what I love to invest in, multifamily income properties. He teaches frequent seminars on many aspects of the investing game, and he has been an invited guest speaker at multiple education institutions and trade organizations throughout Southern California. Enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Anthony. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Reid. What's, uh, what's happening in your neck of the woods this afternoon? Anything exciting? Yeah, we're having a busy December here in Southern California. It's uh, We do a lot of buyer representation here in our office. And, uh, you know, as a lot of people know, the holidays can be a great time to get in there and try and get some stuff in contract when everybody else has their eye off the ball. So we're having a really busy month. Nice, nice. It's keeping, uh, keep hustling, man, making it happen, getting things done. I love it. Love to hear it. Awesome stuff. Um, mate, but before we dive into this, uh, the nuts and, sh- nuts and bolts of today's show, can you elaborate a little bit more on your background and how you got involved in real estate investing? Absolutely. Yeah. So I actually spent almost 10 years in the corporate world, uh, in the insurance industry, actually, completely unrelated uh, to real estate. And, um, you know, I fought the fought. I did the button up thing and, you know, at the end of the day, you work really hard and you get slowly promoted for what seems like, you know, really small reward and a piece of the pie when you work for a big company like that. So um, about halfway through that time period, I decided I was going to try and figure out what sort of business I would open for myself and that I would find something where I could put the fruits of my own labor in my pocket, so to speak. So I went and got my MBA at night while I was still working. And uh, specifically went to business school for the purpose of trying to figure out what kind of business to open and juggled around the ideas of, you know, all kinds of different startups and that kind of thing. And I, I took a real estate investments class during that time period. And it really struck me during that class that there was no need for me to invent some snappy new business model or learn how to code and, and write a website. Uh, you know, people have been successful investing in real estate for hundreds, thousands of years, you could argue. And it was just right there in front of me. So I thought, that's what I'm going to do. That's going to be my chosen business. And then the question from there was just how to get involved. So moving in to brokerage for me was kind of a natural way to get exposed to the local market at a really detailed level. Um, But had really with the primary goal of uh, building my own portfolio and really understanding the market at a fundamental level. Right. Nice. Nice. A lot of people do take that, you know, track of becoming a broker to then hopefully become one knowledgeable about the market, but two, 
you sort of you know turbocharge their own investing career, right? That's sort of your your mindset behind that. Exactly. Yeah. The, really, you know, in building your own portfolio and then also doing brokerage at the same time. I don't think you can find two more complementary activities in the real estate industry. It's worked out really well for me to accelerate the growth of my portfolio. Nice, nice, man. So today's show for all those listeners out there is understanding how Anthony is finding great cash flowing deals in your own backyard, but AKA in a, in a tier one market like Los Angeles, because you know if you don't know, uh, Los Angeles is a tier one market like San Francisco, like New York, like um, what are the other ones? Uh, you know, Stand in Miami, could you be classed as a tier one? Chicago is a tier one city, Washington, Seattle. Um, but what I really wanted to ask you about, Anthony, is how you're going about finding your cash flowing deals here in such a hot market like LA. Right. Well, I think it comes down to a few things. I mean, of course, real estate is all about relationships. Right. So, you know, when you do, when you know a lot of people and you're involved in the local market, uh, it really uh, multiplies the possibilities for you to be able to turn up the sort of deals that are going to meet your own criteria. Um, but of course, you're not just going to find deals at a, at a massive discount in the best areas of town when you're dealing in, you know, a, a tier one market like this. To me, the secret has really been investing in transition areas where you're buying in the path of progress. And so having a really detailed set of local knowledge and strong data has been the difference for me. And, you know, you can get an incredible discount even just by buying a few blocks in some areas of town outside of the areas that have been improving dramatically over the last few years. So that's really been uh, primarily my strategy and how I've been turning these things up. Right. And so you talk about strategy and data. I think they're two very good points. So are you looking at value add properties? And, and the second question to that is with the data, it must, it must help you investing here in LA to really know the data. As you said, investing three blocks away could make, mean the difference between what, forty or $50,000, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, I do a lot of business in the Long Beach submarket down here, which is a really interesting little uh, microcosm of what's happening in a lot of old um, historical urban areas throughout the country. And we keep really detailed quarterly market research here at our office that we perform um, all the time. And that really is the difference. You've got to know what the transition streets are in each area, which side you want to be on, which block is good, which block is not. And, and there's no substitute for that. And there's no just simple website you can grab that stuff from because a lot of the data that's out there is at a really large aggregate level for whole metro areas and stuff like that. So um, being here in the local market for many years, gathering the data ourselves, doing the primary research and, and tracking that and keeping it has been the difference for me. So I know right away, you know, part of my morning routine is to see what's on what's come on the market, even if it's something that just comes on the MLS. I know immediately what I'm going to be able to get the rents on that property. I know locationally what's important. I know other projects that are going on in the areas, other owners that are buying there as well. And that's a huge competitive advantage when you're dealing with a market like this. Right, right. And I always um, laugh or kind of scoff a little bit when when people say to me, the US housing market in general, because you've just hit on a very, very good point that you know what side of the street you need to be on. Like in America, there's over 400 metropolitan statistical areas, MSAs as they're called. And within those MSAs, there are submarkets. And within those submarkets, there's north, south, east, west suburbs. And within those suburbs, 
there's a good street and there's a bad street. And you know the granular detail because you've been investing in the Long Beach market for, for how many years now? I got into this in 2009. So not really that long, but long enough to know it pretty well. Nice, 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 nice. And are you investing in commercial or are you investing in uh, resi uh, properties? Well, uh, I primarily invest myself in multifamily residential, but I, because I'm self-employed, it's a lot easier for me to get financing if I stick to the five unit and up commercial loans. So that's sort of the space I play in. And I like to buy the smaller commercial size residential properties, which sounds funny to say commercial residential, but you know, that's how the lenders like it. So my sweet spot is kind of in about six to 15 units. That's primarily what I'm buying. Um, a lot, some of our clients play in the smaller space, the two to four unit stuff, if they've got, you know, good W2 income, but it's really tough with the banks to get into the, into that conventional, you know, conforming loan on the multifamily properties. No, I think it's, it's so, so important to get into that commercial, even if, you know, investing in a 50 unit property might seem daunting. There is, you know, anything over five units is classed as commercial and the bank will look at you differently and look at the property differently and will underwrite the property more, not necessarily underwrite you is like, how are you going to support this debt? So, um, so that's awesome. So, so with, with your value add deals, what are you looking for? Um, when, you know, when, when a deal comes across your desk in, in 2016, this, this, this show has been recorded in December, 2016, what are you looking for specifically to know that you're going to be out of cash flow on that deal? Well, you know, obviously it depends on the price point and the area, because to your earlier point, even within like, let's say the Long Beach market where I do a lot of business, you know, we have cap rates that range from about two and a half going up to about six. So, <laughs> which is crazy. I mean, you, it's hard to find that kind of variance over whole states sometimes, which, you know, makes our area really interesting and flexible. Um, but, you know, I'm obviously looking for an upside in rents. And then I'm looking for buildings that, like I said, they're, they're in the path of progress. They're in a transition area and is maybe an opportunity to reposition the building and cater to a different sort of tenant base that is going to be able to pay a different kind of rent. And, and, you know, of course, these projects are not without significant investment to get them done, but that's primarily what I'm looking for. So I like to see stuff that's got a 20% upside in rents um, minimum. And then beyond that, I want to be in those cusp areas. And I'm totally fine with buildings that are older. Um, they have a lot of deferred maintenance. Um, our market is cool in that there's a lot of historical properties from 1920s. And uh, luckily, the local rental market really likes buildings with character. So if I can find something where I can lean into that character a little bit and do some inexpensive things that I can do to accentuate uh, the nice aspects of the building's architecture and the units, um, I really like that kind of stuff. Right. And, and with, when you're repositioning a property, uh, what are you doing like to, take, to get your 25 20, 30% rental bump and get those nicer tenants or those uh, um, better demographics of tenants? Are you putting in like quartz countertops? Are you putting in like laminate flooring? Are you putting, or are you just doing the sort of more basics, just like ripping off the, ca the cabinets and resurfacing them and just putting in uh, a, a basic laminate countertop? Yeah, no, we are doing a little more of a deluxe remodel in most of the areas um, where we're trying to cater to that uh, that little higher end tenant. We, to be clear, we don't want to compete with the new stock that's coming in in some of these areas where they're renting out these luxury units for you know two thousand bucks for a studio. Our sweet spot is sort of on the higher end of the older buildings where you know maybe we're now getting um, eleven hundred for a studio unit or 1350 for a one bedroom instead of in the past, those units were getting, you know, 800 and maybe 950 for the, 
for the same unit. So as far as um, what we're doing to the units themselves, we're doing laminate floors throughout. Um, carpet is totally out. The units look a lot bigger, especially when you're dealing with small, weird layouts from these old 1920s buildings. I'm usually replacing cabinets rather than repurposing them. Uh, the prefab cabinets just aren't that much money, and they're, they're a lot better quality, and it really, the unit feels much newer when you've got that. And then we usually do granite. Um, granite's gotten a lot cheaper now that uh, quartz is, is the in stone to do. So we'll do granite kitchens and then granite tops on the vanities in the bathroom. A lot of times we're able to save, you know, the showers, uh, but sometimes we're retiling those as well. So that's really kind of what we do to a unit. We tend to spend between eight to ten thousand uh, dollars when I'm redoing, let's say, you know, a one bedroom to a, a two bedroom unit. Interesting. Putting that in. Interesting. And with when you're spending eight to ten thousand dollars a unit. What are you looking for? What's your metric to make sure, or your rule of thumb, uh, and I'm going to get granular here, to make sure that you know that eight to $10,000 isn't too much or isn't too little uh, in terms of your ROI? So uh, for all those people out there who may not be following, what I'm asking Anthony essentially is, is that number of eight to $10,000, when is he going to re recoup that cost? Is it in three years? Is it in five years? When will that happen, Anthony? Right. So it's an interesting question that I get all the time from people. And for me, it's, it's less about the payback period of the increased rent paying for the renovation. It's more about the increase in value. So this is your classic you know, value add discussion. And the flip side of investing in a low cap rate or high gross rent multiplier market like we have here is although the income that you get for the purchase price on the building is low, the contrary of that is that for every dollar you raise the rent, you raise the value by much more than you do in other markets. So like as an example for a deal that I, I bought in the middle of this year, one bedroom units and there's about a $300 upside on average per unit. And I'll spend 11, about $10,000 remodeling that unit. So to raise 300 bucks, it's going to take a long time to pay back my $10,000 rehab cost, but that building is in a 15 times gross market. So 300 bucks times 12 for 12 months in the year is $3,600 a year, but then times 15 for my increased value, and I've added $54,000 in value to the building. So I'll spend 10 grand uh, for, for 54 total or, or a net of 44 all day long. Right. And really, as long as I'm, you know, getting at least two times the uh, the value back for the amount I'm spending, it's going to make sense for me. Right. And are you basing that off a gross rent multiplier? How did you just? What was? Where's the fifteen come from? Just for correct. Instance. Yeah. So I like to use gross rent multiplier. It's based, It's the simplest possible uh, representation of the value in relation to the income on a building. So um, I would say that in that example, that building is in a fifteen times gross rent multiplier area. So for every dollar I can raise the rent on those units, I make 15 bucks in value. Yeah. Got it. Got it. So that's where you get the, the comparison of spending $10,000 because if you're putting in three, if you're getting an increase of $300 times by 15, it gives you your $50,000 right. uh, or 45, whatever it, whatever it works out to be. But then you can compare that to what you're spending in that first year, right? So right. that then you can then, for all those people listening, then that can really be powerful to determine is eight or nine thousand or ten thousand dollars too much? And you, Anthony just you know blew me out of the water just then because it does make sense. It's interesting stuff, mate. What a, walk me through a deal in terms of cash on cash? What are you seeing? Uh, you know, give me a ten unit rundown, maybe if you can. Sure. So um, actually, just bought a ten unit and closed on Tuesday, which we're nice. congratulations. Oh, thank you. Um, this is an interesting deal. You know, it's it's just like for example, 
it's a building that could be repositioned. It's in a, you know, an area that's, that's coming around rapidly right now. Uh, it's about half studios and half small one bedrooms. Um, at close, the, the cash on cash on this building, if we were to have put um, normal financing on it, it would be very low. You're probably looking less than 3%. It would, it would barely break even. Uh, but we're, in this particular case, we're able to raise rents probably 40% over the yeah, period in this building, which is, which is just crazy. So not only do you get the additional um, value in this one, we bought it for, we bought it for 1.4 million. We expect it's going to be worth probably about 2 million on the nose. Um, a year from now, we'll probably spend 150 grand to get there. But even after we've, you know, raised rents and recapped our financing out into permanent financing, we're still looking at an 8% cash on cash return for equity in the project. So, um, you know, when people tell me you just can't cash flow down here, I think it just takes a little bit of creative thinking. And that building is going to be a great example for us. It's, you know, five blocks to the Pacific Ocean, and we're making, you know, cash returns that you wouldn't see outside of, you know, Las Vegas or something like that. So <laughs> they worked out well for us. Nice. And talk to me about the, the, the price per door, because uh, in, in the markets that I invest in, in Texas and stuff like that, we're looking at around forty-five dollars to $50,000 a door. So in your example, $1.4 million, that's $140,000. Is that low for Long Beach or the area yeah. that you're, you're investing in? That is quite low. Yeah, in this building, um, the price per door is a little bit misleading there because uh, the building itself is very small on square footage. The units on that building are between like 350 and 450 square feet each. So um, it really depends on the unit mix and, and what you're looking at. I'd say, you know, for that size unit, you know, 140 is pretty normal, 150 depending on the area. Um, but for a two bedroom unit in the same location, that's, you know, 700 square feet, you're looking a lot close to $200,000 a door. But, you know, the important thing is, is whether you're buying two bedroom units or studios or ones or whatever, um, it's really all about the income down here and the numbers, you know, on a percentage basis and a value add basis are, are going to pencil out no matter what you pay for door, as long as you know your rents. Right. No, and I think you also just hit on another pretty good topic there, which is you compared that the fact is you had a, maybe a duplex for $200,000 a unit. But again, the bank isn't valuing a duplex as much on its income. They've got to, and how you have that pay the debt. Where on a 10 unit, you might only get $140,000, but the bank will be looking more at the rental income that you're generating from that property. So you, the financing is yeah. easy to come by. So which for everyone who's listening out there, it's very, very key. <laughs> Absolutely. And even more you know, importantly, not only does the bank look at the value of these buildings according to the income they generate, but the market looks at them according to the income they generate too. So your ability to have absolute control over the exit value of your own asset is what makes commercial multifamily investing so attractive to me. Yes, yes. And I, I I don't know how many times I've said this over the last, since Brexit and since other things have happened in the market. Like if your, if your money was in the stock market and you, you know, you, you, essentially you'll read, uh, not retraded, but you know, after Brexit happened, your 401k took a hit and you have no control over that. So investing in real estate, particularly commercial real estate, where you have complete control, you know, your rents didn't, you know, fluctuate like the market did after Brexit happened, right? So uh, I, I just, I see people, I, I scratch my head when people think of real estate as an alternative asset, but uh, that's for another conversation. <laughs> um, 
I wanted to talk a little bit about over the last three to five years, particularly in Long Beach. I know the area very, very well. Um, I'm helping develop a 94-unit property down there. Um, how have things changed? And talking about price per door and, and rents and stuff like that, is there a ceiling um, in terms of where, you're, where they're going in the market and, and what you are seeing? Or are we going to come into a bit of a softening over the next couple of years? What do you think? It's a really interesting question. So, you know, I think it would be difficult for cap rates to keep falling and gross rent multipliers to just keep rising um, in a static environment because you're going to run into problems with financing on a lot of these deals. You know, down payments are getting larger and larger. Debt coverage ratios are harder to hit. And you're not able to buy with the kind of leverage that you want to maximize your total return on equity if it gets out of control. So that being said, you know, we are, it is a, a vastly different market than it was even a few years ago. Um, I, I can remember back in 2012, 2011, Long Beach, you're pretty much paying 10 times gross for anything you want that's not in the very nicest neighborhoods in town. And, you know, obviously I miss those days, but uh, for those of us that picked up a few things, you know, we're doing okay now. Um, really for the last year, you know, even year and a half, what I've seen happen in the local market has been really interesting. Cap rates and gross rent multipliers have not changed a lot. Cap rates have, done, have gone down a little bit more um, since mid-2015, gross rent multipliers have gone up a little bit. However, on an appreciation basis, the prices have continued to go up uh, incredibly quickly. And if you think about the math and cap rates and gross rent multipliers, the only way for that to happen is if rents are rising um, faster than um, cap rates or gross rent multipliers are changing because the rents are the other part of that equation. And that's definitely what we've seen here. Rents have been going up 5 8% even a year in some areas. So you can actually have a market where the market GRM doesn't change, but if the market rents go up by 8% and you stick with market and your buildings, you experienced 8% appreciation. And, and that's been the story here. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's very, very interesting. And it also goes back to the fact that um, stuff that I would look for when I invest out of state is sort of a little bit out the window when you invest here in, in Southern California and Long Beach, because you mentioned in that your 10 unit uh, that you just picked up, it's all one bedrooms and studios where uh, if I was to pick up a 10 bedroom, a 10 unit in in Texas, I would probably balk away from, from one bedrooms just because of the type of tenant it would attract. With that being said, are you investing in like, is it a, cl is it a classic class C neighborhood uh, in the areas? And, and are you okay with the type of a tenant that, that a studio would attract in those types of neighborhoods? Well, so yeah, interesting question. I would say where I'm buying right now is not, we're not really buying in class C neighborhoods anymore. Um, it, it was it was great to buy in class C neighborhoods a few years ago. And we've kind of transitioned, I've, I've transitioned most of my equity into sort of B, you know, B plus neighborhoods through exchanging. And what's happened is that these buildings that sort of have these, these much older buildings with the studios and the small one bedrooms are in these areas that are turning around. So you're starting to see the new tenants coming in there and the tenant base, like in these buildings that I'm working on, it's a lot easier to reposition them and attract those kinds of people. Of course, I don't think you're going to find those sorts of tenants in a lot of other areas in the country. We're fortunate here to have, you know, a thriving art scene in downtown Long Beach. It's a very dense um, kind of historic urban core, very bicycle friendly, transit oriented. So um, there are a lot of younger people that don't need a lot of space. And they just want to be in the middle of the action, and but they want a nice unit where they can come home and relax. But it's you're still looking at single occupancy, young professionals. So um, that's sort of the market that we're catering to. And I think you have to know that those tenants are going to be there 
to undertake that kind of strategy. I wouldn't do that, you know, way out in the suburbs because that's where those people are moving from to be in cool, dense metro areas with a lot of character like Long Beach. Right, right. And so how far as a, as a crow flies are you investing um, from that downtown urban core? Uh, very close. The, the last, the two that I just mentioned, for examples, are probably about one mile to the east of downtown Long Beach. You could, uh, you know, it'd be a quick walk, even faster bike ride down there. And, and they're well located to little neighborhood um, sort of strips that have, you know, revitalized and turned into boutiques and art theaters and that kind of stuff in the, in the local neighborhood. Down near Belmont Shore area, is that where it is? Not well. Belmont Shore is kind of is kind of pricey. That's been nice for a while now, so I don't see a lot of opportunity. If you're familiar with the local uh, Long Beach market, these examples are kind of in the Alamitos Beach and in the North Alamitos Beach market, which is right between downtown and Belmont Shore. So even in the recent history, that hasn't been a great neighborhood, um, but it's really transformed over the last five to ten years. It's it's much nicer now and, and that that kind of demographic is moving in and it's not as expensive as going somewhere like Belmont Shore. Right, right. And that brings up a, another good point that I want to sort of, you know, um, not harp on, but I want to dig a bit deeper into is, you know, with your deal finding, um, how are you coming across your deals um, in, in a market and in the current situation, economic situation we are in 2016 and also given it's a tier one market that you're in? Right. Well, you know, You'd be surprised how many good deals you can actually find sitting on the NLS. <laughs> it's interesting in that the uh, sort of industry norm has changed over the last five to ten years. People expect, you know, sellers to list properties at very competitive prices, and, and the norm is to pay at or above listing price, even in some cases. So when you do get the occasional seller that gets a little too optimistic about their value and they list something for really higher than it should be. Um, I've seen a lot of opportunity in negotiating on stale listings that have been sitting on the market. Any deal is a good deal at the right price, and especially if it's in the area that I want to buy. So uh, I have no problem at all looking at something that's been sitting around three, four months, even a year, and and, and seeing if somebody's ready for a reality check. So I've had some success there. Um, the other way, obviously, is, is with local relationships. Uh, we know a lot of people that are investing in the area, and you know I have friends and colleagues that I've owned buildings with. And so there's sort of, you know, one of, one of my favorite things that one of my, my real estate professor told me in, in uh, business school was that insider trading in real estate is totally legal. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of deals that sort of happen between everybody that knows each other and one person's trying to get out of a dog from their perspective and get their money into something else when for another person they're perfectly happy taking on a project and they see some opportunity in something. So a lot of these deals are coming from relationships that I have for doing a lot of business in the local market. Nice, nice. And have you ever considered investing out of state in higher cap rate markets and regions? I've considered it and I've done it. Um, okay. Yeah, I've dabbled in, in Las Vegas. And you know, my timing was, was good there on this cycle. Um, made some money. Um, but at the end of the day, the out-of-state stuff just worries me. Um, I'm not there on a daily basis, you know, and it may or may not be be a good buy. Um, the cap rates are certainly enticing. Um, but for every person, you know, that I've met that has had success investing out-of-state, I've met others that have had bad experiences with property management when the uh, owner is not local or have had, you know, 
been oversold something by local brokers. So I think you're definitely fighting an uphill battle when you're investing in an area that you're not intimately familiar with, um, way beyond the economics of investing in out-of-state markets in areas where builders can add uh, as much supply as they want, which is sort of my concern and why I got out of Las Vegas. I, I don't want to be somebody else's warning for the next downturn. And I feel like a lot of those markets where they're you know, in the middle of the plains or the desert or wherever, those are going to be the first to be overbuilt and, and, and signal the downturn for the rest of us. Right, right. Uh, so, Anthony, this show is all about uh, helping international investors break into the U.S. market. Are you working with any international investors right now? Yes, actually, we are. We've, uh, we've got a few different international investors we've been working with recently. And I think we're going to continue to see even more of that. Uh, we've obviously had an interesting um, election recently in our country, uh, which brings some uncertainty into the immediate future for a lot of the prognosticators and so forth. But internationally, there's a lot of countries in a lot of parts of the world that are much more uncertain about, about their future. And so people that have done well in their own local markets around the world uh, really flock, especially to these, you know, tier one markets in the U.S. I think the U.S., no matter you know what your local political views are going to be, is always going to be a bastion of stability when it comes to our real estate market. No, uh, I, I completely so, agree. Yeah, lots of international investors coming here, and they're perfectly comfortable investing in a Class A market because they know what that means for the long-term stability and the, the really low risk of their portfolio as they bring money here from abroad. Right, and and where are most of your international investors are coming from? Uh, China. <laughs> no how, do, how do I know you're going to say that? <laughs> so, Anthony, with all your experience uh, finding great cash flowing deals in your local tier one market, are you ready to give me your top five investing tips? Sure. All right, mate, what's the daily habit that you practice to keep on track towards your goals? I say look at data every single day. It, it is so easy to skip skip a little part of your routine and take your eye off the ball. But going back to our earlier discussion, if you have a daily focus on knowing your local market and, and reviewing every piece of data and news and information that you can get your hands on, just if it's even for 10, 15 minutes a day, you're going to be ahead of the competition. So I try and do that every morning while I eat breakfast. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> Straight up and at it like a good entrepreneur. I love to hear yeah. that. <laughs> uh, who's the most influential person in your career to date? Uh, I, I was very fortunate to meet a good friend of mine uh, in business school who'd been uh, investing for um, 10 years already when I got interested in getting into this. And he's now one of my partners, uh, really invited me into the industry and allowed me to partner with him on some of my first deals and kind of learn by participating. And I think for anybody getting started, uh, there's no better substitute, no better way to learn than to find somebody with, even if it's just a little bit of experience, find somebody you can partner up with and, and just, you know, make some mistakes and learn from their experience and, and grow together. So nice, nice stuff. Uh, what's the most influential tool in your real estate business? I'm sure you'd have to have one being a broker and an active investor. Well, uh, I mean, to be, I, I have to come back to the data again. I mean, sitting, getting down into, into rental comps, into the MLS, uh, that primary research for me is is just huge, and you know, obviously, using things like you know Excel to track it and, and and keep it is huge. But keeping good records and consistently staying on top of that stuff is so important. I'm always surprised at 
you know, there, there's a lot of publications out there with data, but, you know, like I said, it, it tends to be for a really large macro level. It's hard to drill down into a local area with enough detail to make sense out of whatever you might be looking at in your local market. So if you can collect that stuff on your own and you can start to get a history and it's well organized so that it's usable, that's the single best tool you can have. The unfortunate piece of that is it, it, it can take years to build that kind of research and data that you can um, that you can lean on to make good decisions. Right. But if you do a little bit every day, you'll be surprised after six or 12 months, you look back and see how much data you have collected. Oh, and, 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 you know, data is king in this world. So it is, it is. Yeah. Uh, mate, I've been, I used to ask people about the best deal that they've completed to date, but I think I'm going to take a different tune on this heading, heading into the end of 2016 and, and beyond is what's the worst deal that you've done and what are the lessons learned? Because, failures, people learn a lot more from failures than they do from successes. So what has been the, the, the most, uh, the most best lesson you've learned today? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, best lesson I've learned, it was a deal I did a few years ago. It was very early in my investing career, a uh, small little property that I bought. And um, I, I kind of was, I came into it, you know, shooting from the hip, <laughs> so to speak. And I, I skipped a lot of the due diligence that should go on in any deal, you know, even if it's a small one, just to get going. Um, and this particular property had a, a bootleg unit. It was a duplex with a, with a bootleg third unit. And I knew that, that that was a bootleg unit, but it had some other stuff going on with it as well. And that, to make a long story short, the city eventually found out about that. Um, they forced me to convert it, not just back to a duplex, but they got mad and said that the lot size didn't even support a duplex and forced me to convert it all the way back to a single wow. family. <laughs> and, and then on top of that, the tenant that was in the bootleg unit got the bright idea that maybe there were some, you know, legal damages that he could get as a result of living there. <laughs> so we got sued too, <laughs> which is uh, which is no fun. Um, obviously, you know, your your legal responsibility is to provide a clean and safe place for people to live. So you know, luckily uh, we won the lawsuit and didn't lose a ton of money converting. You know, converting the, the the property back down to a single family definitely eroded the value. Luckily, I was able to continue renting it out. It paid for itself and a little bit more. I held on to it for a few years, and I did end up selling it. You know, and, and making out okay. So I think, uh, you know, for for the worst mistake answer, I I probably escaped pretty light on that one. It could have been a lot worse, but it was a good lesson for me in, in doing a more thorough job on the due diligence. Right. And so what would have you looked at? Um, any specifics? Because I know in those sort of things with bootlegged uh, granny flats and additional apartments, um, you try and look at the meters, either the water meters or the electrical meters to see if, if it is you know set up for two units or three units. If it, and if it's only set up for one, then it's a pretty right. good indication, right? <laughs> yeah. The meters are a great place to start. And, and a lot of people these days, too, are, um, you know, the computer and the Internet is such a, an easy, accessible tool. It's tempting to just go online and see if the city has any records. And if they don't, then you just say, oh, it's all fine and everything. But I really would recommend, you know, the old strategy of going to the city and turning up all of the real physical records you can find on any property that you're going to buy. Uh, you'd be surprised sometimes what's available in good old analog that's not online <laughs> might help you out. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it's not not too long ago the government was probably still in analog time, so uh, <laughs> trying, yeah, to, some, keep, some trying to keep up. Still, yeah, <laughs> mate. Um, last question is: Where can people reach you to continue the conversation? 
Absolutely. People could feel free to email me. My email is anthony.walker at buckinghaminvestments.com, all spelled out and like the palace. Or uh, they can check out our website. We're at www.buckinghaminvestments.com. And feel free to shoot me an email. Check us out. Of course, I'm on Facebook as well um, under the same titles. And I'd be happy to uh, answer any questions that people have about the local market here and help people out. Well, Anthony, you've definitely provided some incredible, incredible advice about getting it done in your local market. I just wanted to recap on a few of the things we've talked about in today's show. I think the biggest takeaway is that you are an expert in your local market and you are boots on the ground and you're constantly analyzing data. And because you're analyzing that data, you can really act quickly on a deal when it comes through your door. The second thing is that you're looking at gross rent multipliers, uh, 15 it sounds like in, in some of those markets that you're investing in, and looking at what that means in terms of rental bumps and how much money you're gonna be putting into a kitchen or a bathroom and will that be paid back in a certain period of time or will that you know, give itself uh, an additional value to the property? Um, did I leave anything out, mate, that you'd like to leave the listeners with? Yeah, I think those are the two biggest keys, know your market, create some great relationships, you know, and, and just there's no substitute for spending the time out there and looking at stuff. Absolutely. Well, mate, thank you so much for dropping by. Have a great rest of your week and we'll catch up soon. Thanks so much, Reed. I appreciate it. Cheers, mate. Well, there you have it, guys. Another great episode. I just keep bringing so many bloody awesome episodes to you. Anthony was truly an expert in his local market, and that is why he is getting cash flowing deals in a tier one market like Los Angeles. Albeit cash on cash may not be that great, but get creative with the financing. I think that was a really, really awesome takeaway topic or takeaway point from that. Really understand how much value you're adding to the property and just constantly analyze the data. If you're constantly analyzing data, regardless of your market, whether you be in the local market that were your boots on the ground or in another market, making it a daily habit and creating a database so you can keep on track um, of where that market is tracking to. And so you can act quicker when a deal comes across your desk because you know that rents may have gone up in the last three months by $25 a month or $50 a month or whatever that might be. And you can start you know, tracking the, the path of progress, which is really, really important in investing in any city uh, throughout the United States or even the world. Um, so guys, I hope you got a lot of awesome information out of today's show and giving you some, um, you know, give you an oomph to get off the couch and start investing in US real estate. Now, remember, if you do want to become a part of this cracking team that we're creating here on investing in the US podcast, then jump on iTunes and subscribe to my show and leave a, a comment in iTunes because it shows iTunes that we are, I am providing, we are providing a great community for everyone to listen and learn and grow as real estate entrepreneurs. Um, if you do leave a comment, as I said, I will shoot you my new ebook, which is The Art and Science of Raising Capital Like a Pro, The 4P Rule. Pitch, professionalism, practice, and patience. They are so important. The, 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 the four pillars to creating you as a syndicator, to changing your mindset, to understand how you raise a limited amount of money to start doing more and more deals. If you have access to capital, the more deals you get done, the bigger your real estate investing career will become. So guys, jump on iTunes, leave the show a review, then shoot me a screenshot of that at info at rsnpropertygroup.com. Remember to check out all the shows.
show notes for any of the links that we did mention on today's show, it'll be up on my website at rsnpropertygroup.com forward slash podcast. If you are ever coming through LA and you want to meet up for a beer or a coffee or you want to do some lunch, then sh- shoot me an email at read at rsnpropertygroup.com and we'll link up somewhere. Thanks again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge because that's what we're all about here on this show. I want to continue to grow your financial IQ through education about US real estate. Guys, we're going to do this all again next week. So take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing. Happy investing.